Taiwan is on high alert as the new coronavirus spreads across China and around the world. I'm Andrew Ryan. I'm Natalie So. Let's take a look at the stories that have been on our radar this week. Front and center on the radar this week is the novel coronavirus outbreak that's infected more than 28,000 people and killed at least 565 worldwide. Right now in Taiwan, there are 13 confirmed cases of the virus. This week, Taiwan joined other countries in evacuating some of its nationals from the Chinese city of Wuhan, the origin of the new coronavirus. The first flight, carrying 247 people, touched down in Taiwan on Monday. Further flights are possible, with hundreds of Taiwanese still in Wuhan. But officials say more work is needed to ensure that priority is given to citizens who are elderly, children, or are chronically ill. Taiwan has been excluded from emergency WHO meetings about the outbreak, despite having 13 confirmed cases of infection. This has prompted statements from Japan, Canada, the EU, and the US supporting Taiwan's participation. Taiwan's foreign ministry says inclusion is important to ensure that there are, quote, no gaps in global virus prevention efforts. Meanwhile, the outbreak has created confusion in the skies as a number of countries halted flights to and from China. Italy has included Taiwan in its ban on Chinese flights, forcing the cancellation of direct flights to Rome. At the same time, Bangladesh, a country without direct flights to Taiwan, has included Taiwanese nationals in a ban on Chinese citizens entering the country. The foreign ministry has protested both moves. Vietnam earlier stopped flights from Taiwan, but has since reversed its decision. Finally this week, Taiwan has banned the entry of Chinese nationals starting Thursday. Beginning Friday, foreigners who have been to China in the previous two weeks will also be denied entry. Taiwan's government has also issued a red travel advisory for China. All returning citizens will be quarantined for 14 days. Taiwan has begun rationing surgical masks. That's because people have been hoarding them. But don't worry, the government has a plan. Let's have a look. You'll need to bring your national health insurance card to an NHI-affiliated pharmacy, and we'll have a link to those below. There's a limit, only one purchase of two masks in a seven-day period. The price is 10 Taiwan dollars, about 16 cents US for two. You can only buy them on certain days, depending on your NHI card number. So you can check the show notes for more details. But the question is, do you even need to wear a mask? Well, that's the topic of today's Taiwan Explained. In today's Taiwan Explained, I'm going to tell you all about surgical masks and who should wear them. All right, Nally, we have one minute on the clock. You ready? Yes. Go. It seems like everyone in Taiwan has been obsessed with one thing, face masks. But do we really need them? Well, let's first talk about how viruses are spread. They're spread through coughing and sneezing, contact with infected people and infected animals, and contaminated surfaces, food, and water. But how effective are these surgical masks? Well, they were invented in the 1800s to protect patients from droplets coming from surgeons' mouths and noses. They do protect others from you and protect you from some large droplets from others. But they do not protect from small airborne particles. The US CDC does not consider it respiratory protection. One reason is there is leakage around the edges. 
So, when should you wear a mask? Well, the Taiwan government says you don't need to wear one all the time, and they said you should wear one in a hospital if you have a fever, other symptoms, or if your immune system is weak. Ah, <laughs> a little over. It's okay. Okay, I'll、Last、finish one, up.、Yeah. And you could wear one、um, if you're in an enclosed space or in contact with a lot of people. Okay, so wearing a mask does not necessarily guarantee protection. No, no, not at all. So only from maybe large droplets. If you sneeze, like right there. Okay. This might protect me. Actually, and then it's going to protect me if you're wearing it. Too, That's right. right. That's、okay. right. Excellent. But you know what people need to do is actually、mm. wash your hands、mm-hmm. a lot and for about twenty seconds each time. That'll help. Us be protected from a lot of germs. I have definitely been washing my hands、Me、a lot. Me too. And don't touch your don't face. Don't touch your、in. face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this is not the first time that Taiwan has had a thing for face masks. We're now going to tell you about the history of face masks in Taiwan. Coronavirus fears have sent demand for protective masks soaring. It may feel unprecedented, but for the National Museum of Taiwan History, this is just another chapter in a story that goes back 100 years. Taiwan's first protective masks appeared in the 1920s when the island was ruled as a Japanese colony. A colonial-era flyer in the museum's collection recommends that people wear masks during an outbreak of meningitis. In the final years of Japanese rule, as World War II raged, gas masks also appeared in Taiwan. A 70s advertisement from the collection says, "Masks keep out exhaust from scooters and pesticide fumes." By the 80s, gauze masks had caught on. But a famous 1982 bank robbery made it clear that there should be limits on where they can be worn. Medical-grade N95 masks became big after the 2003 SARS outbreak, and surgical masks took center stage again during the 2014 Sunflower Student Movement. This time as a tool of protest. As masks come back into the spotlight, the museum has taken to Facebook to show just how long they've played a role in Taiwanese life. This week on Taiwan by Number, we're going to be reflecting on the last time that Taiwan dealt with an outbreak of coronavirus, and of course, that is the SARS outbreak of 2003. Now, Leslie and Allie, were you both here in 2003 for、I、that outbreak? I was. I was. I was、mm-hmm. in school. Okay. I was here at RTI. Oh yes, Leslie is younger. <laughs> I was here at RTI too. Now, do you remember this? Does this look familiar to either of you two? I don't remember that. Okay. Well, this is my ID from work here at RTI. Oh, I get it.、No, you can see、it. all the little stickers on there. I kept all the little stickers from each time they checked my temperature、uh, when I came into RTI、uh, to make sure that we didn't have a fever. They're doing it now too.、And、we're doing it once again. I'm also keeping those stickers as a、oh, memory、wow. of this time. Now, I, I want to start off by showing you some numbers about the coronavirus statistics to give you an idea of where we are at right now in the outbreak. Let's have a look at that. So as you can see, nearly thirty thousand people are confirmed to have the virus.、Uh, sadly, about、um, nearly six hundred people have passed away already, and it looks like more than a thousand people、uh, have recovered from the illness, which I think is a bright spot in this. Now, my question for you to start off with is: if we look back at SARS, what was the death toll from SARS back in two thousand three around the world? Globally,、oh, globally. Was it three hundred twenty? Three hundred twenty. Three hundred twenty for Nally, Leslie. Three hundred fifty. All right, let's have a look at the answer. Oh, seven seventy-four. Seven hundred and seventy-four. So I want to kind of now compare SARS and coronavirus. Let's have a look at those statistics right now. Nearly thirty thousand cases,、uh, confirmed cases for coronavirus. 
we have, uh, as I mentioned, nearly 600 deaths. For SARS, 774 deaths. What was the confirmed cases of SARS, just to compare the two? About um, 9,000. 9,000, says Natalie. I'm going to go proportional, 30,000. 30,000. All right, let's have a look at the answer. 8,096. So about 8,096. Now, I want to caution you against comparing these two viruses in the way that we just compared them. Because, of course, these are two very different viruses. Uh, There are a couple things that you have to keep uh, in mind when you're looking at it. First of all, coronavirus spreads much more quickly than SARS did. Also, people are contagious even if they're not showing the symptoms Mm. of having the virus. Um, But what's even more important than those two things is the fatality rate. So I want to show you the fatality rate for SARS. Let's have a look at that. So 9.6% fatality rate. What do you think the fatality rate is now for the coronavirus. Uh, This is, of course, an estimate made by scientists. We don't know the exact fatality rate, but what is the estimated fatality rate? 4%. 4%, Natalie? I want to do some quick math off of the numbers you just showed me, 1.5%. 1.5%. Okay, let's have a look at the answer. Okay, so we're looking at a roughly 2% fatality rate for the coronavirus Um, Now, this is much lower than for SARS. So that's something that um, maybe can make us feel a little bit better about the situation, considering how quickly it is spreading. The number of people who pass away is much, much lower than it was for SARS. Now, one final thing I want to do uh, is show you this interesting number that I found this week. Um, One of the things we've been using is alcohol spray to disinfect or, or, you know, to to make things cleaner, like our hands, surfaces. This iPad earlier today, I used a little bit of alcohol to wash it off. Now, there are two different types of alcohol that are easy to find on the market. Uh, One is 75%. The other is above 90%. So my question for you is, in terms of uh, killing bugs, uh, viruses, things like that, which one is stronger, 75% or above 90%? It's a trick question, Natalie. It's got to be a trick question. Logic will tell you 95%. (laughs) But but what if Andrew already knew that, and he's just playing off of our paranoia? Ah, you know me very well. I'm going to say 97%. You're going to say 90%, Natalie? Yeah. Okay. You can go for the... I'll go for the, 75%. One of us is going to be right. right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's have a look at the answer. 75%. It is Why indeed is 75%. That's interesting. This is fascinating. So I looked into this, and basically the reason is, is the alcohol will kill the cells too quickly, or it works on the cells too quickly, and actually it ends up protecting the cells because it oh works so fast. So water will slow it down, but water penetrates the cells very easily. Um, the other thing about water is, is that it evaporates less quickly. So it has more time to work on the cells ah, and really kill them. So don't buy the other one. Don't buy the other one. Buy the That's 75%. That's good to know. That's good I've to been know, Andrew. 95%. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, actually, this is important to know, too. You can actually dilute the 90 or 95%. Oh, just add some water, right? Add some water and make sure it's around 70, 75% and you're good to go. All right. All right. Good deal. So that's today's Taiwan by Number. On this week's Who in Taiwan, our mystery person is a gentle defender. Are you guys ready? Yep. yep. All right. So on buzz number one, we have Natalie So. 
Buzzer number two, we have Leslie Liao. All right, so let's begin. So our mystery person was born in 1951 in Kaohsiung, southern Taiwan. He's one of eight children. He has been invested as a knight of the equestrian of the Holy Sepulchre of Jerusalem. His father was county uh, magistrate of Kaohsiung. His mother managed a daycare. But he went into public health and got degrees from National Taiwan University and Johns Hopkins. Is it Chen Jianren? It is. It is our vice president, Chen Jianren. I guess he's a logical person to do this week. That's because... He is an epidemiologist, and he's also the person who guided us through SARS. That's right. I remember that. Yeah. So I want to tell you a little bit more about uh, our vice president. Here he's answering questions from reporters about the uh, coronavirus on January 30th. Also, he is a devout Catholic. Uh, you can see that he met the Pope. Um, he actually met three different popes. Wow. Here he is with uh, Pope Francis. And in March of 2019, he announced that he was not running for re-election. Here's another picture to show you. You can see him here after President Tsai gave an acceptance speech following her victory in the presidential election on January 11th. He's there to the right of the president. And on the left is the new vice president-elect, William Lai. So there you go. That is uh, Vice mm -hmm. President Tanjiren. That was a good and quick guess. Um, I thought it was going to be William Lai because he just went to the U.S. But then, hey, we have another vice president. <laughs> That's pretty important. I'm just going to tell you guys, I was way off. <laughs> I was way off. Who do you think it was going to be? I thought it was going to be the current minister of health. Since uh -huh. it's all. Ah, so, not too far off. Also a great guess. I'm glad I didn't push the button before Natalie, though. <laughs> <laughs> and that is this week's Who in Taiwan. This week on Hashtag Taiwan... The ICAO, the International Civil Aviation Organization. Now, it's one of the UN's many agencies, like the World Health Organization. And with this most recent coronavirus outbreak, many countries are relying on these agencies to coordinate prevention efforts. Now, you're probably asking me, where does Taiwan come in in all of this? And the sad truth is, we don't really. Taiwan is not part of the UN. In fact, the Chinese government says China already represents Taiwan, and it's kind of a sad reality that we deal with. Enter stage left, the ICAO's Twitter account. Now, they got into some arguments on the internet over Taiwan. What happened? Well, I have the story for you right here. Buckle up, you guys. It's going to be a lot of information. <laughs> Try to keep up. Okay. Jessica Drun is a non-resident fellow at an American think tank. On January 22nd, she posted these two tweets supporting Taiwan's participation in these two organizations. Well, a few days later, Jessica revealed that she was actually blocked by the ICAO's Twitter account. Mm. Now, a lot of people saw this as a blatant move on the ICAO's part to kind of censor mentions about Taiwan. And a lot of people, you know, they thought that the ICAO was just trying to censor, censor, censor. But there's a funny thing about the internet, you guys. When you tell it to go left, it makes a hard right. And a lot of people started dogpiling on the ICAO uh, just to see, you know, why does a mention of Taiwan merit Twitter blocks? And people got blocked as well. Here are just five examples. And people started kind of wearing that mm. like a badge of honor. Wow, look at all those wow, people that got blocked. Wow, interesting. This is just wow. a small sampling. There's a lot more. Anyway... In response, the ICAO said, ICAO has not blocked anyone for asking anything about anywhere. Please do not contribute to the spread of this min misinformation. Oh but guys, <laughs> the truth is right here. Anyway, 
When things go down on social media, there's one person in Taiwan I like to turn to, and that's our foreign minister Joseph Wu. The dude tweets a lot, and he likes to sign his tweets JW, just so you know it's him. So in response to the ICAO, he said this: Supporting hashtag Taiwan's inclusion in the ICAO is communicating misinformation. See no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil, and then the Taiwan issue will just disappear. No. Taiwan will remain an air traffic hub, and the only way to ensure safety is inclusion. And there's that signature, JW Joseph Wu. Wow! Look at those monkey emojis. That's cute. I, uh, I, I, I just well, see him. Very like, straightforward. Minister of Foreign Affairs, just like monkey, monkey. Yeah. Just, <laughs> it makes me happy. Anyway, uh, this whole slew of drama also caught the attention of U.S. officials, like Wisconsin Representative Mike Gallagher. Florida Senator Marco Rubio and the State Department spokesperson Morgan Ortegas. In fact, this got so bad that the U.S. State Department actually released an official statement condemning the ICAO's actions of blocking Ooh. people on Twitter over mentioning Taiwan. Look at that outrageous! I mean, look at that! Yeah, it's out- okay. they blatantly said outrageous. Now I'm running out of time here, you guys, but there's one last thing I got to show you, and it's really important. And it came in at the last minute while I was writing hashtag Taiwan. Have you guys heard of the hacking hacker group Anonymous? Uh, yes. Okay, so they actually hacked into a UN server. And they made a new website supporting Taiwan. <laughs> this is hosted wow. on a UN server. You can find this website online. After I think for thirty-eight hours, forty hours now, this website's still up there. Whoa! The Taiwan top there one. is on top is the anonymous <laughs> logo, so you know it's them. And then Taiwan number one. That's been kind of like a, a tagline for people who are pro Taiwan. Taiwanese flag, KMT flag, DPP flag, and then they have the Taiwanese uh, national anthem there on the bottom. And wow. at the very bottom is. I don't know. It's one of the songs to the Avengers Endgame. I don't know why it's there. <laughs> They're a fan. Yeah, but if you are interested in this topic, guys, go on Twitter. There's so much more information that I haven't even touched upon yet, and uh, I gotta go find a jacket because this shade that's getting thrown around is making this place chill. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's great. Yeah. So. All right. Well, thank you so much, Leslie. That was very interesting. And uh, that's it for hashtag Taiwan this week. Do follow us on social media and leave a comment below. We'd love to hear from you. And finally today, where in Taiwan? Now, at the top of the show, we showed you a photo and asked if you knew where it was. Let's take one more look now at that photo. This iconic Taiwanese mountain recently saw the biggest snowfall in 20 years. Where in Taiwan is this? Well, let's take a look at the answer. People driving down Provincial Highway 21 are being greeted with a rare sight: Taiwan's highest mountain, Yushan, covered in snow. The beautiful scenery has sent tourists and nearby residents alike driving up to the mountain to take a look. The management office at Yushan National Park says recent snowfall has piled up to 25 centimeters, the highest accumulation in the last 20 years. Well, we hope you enjoyed this inside look at Taiwan this week. And as you'll notice, we still have some red lanterns above us. That's right. That's because the Lantern Festival is this Saturday. Go out, have some fun, and we'll bring you some images of that next week. And do connect with us on social media. Leave a comment below. We would love to hear from you. For Taiwan Insider, I am Natalie So. I'm Leslie Liao, and I'm Andrew Ryan. See you next week.
Taiwan Today with Natalie So. Welcome to Taiwan Today. I'm Natalie So. Today we're going to take a closer look at the new coronavirus outbreak in Wuhan, China. Many people are concerned about the virus that has spread to over two dozen countries. Has China been honest with its numbers, and how is it handling this crisis? Stay tuned as Andrew Ryan speaks with journalist William Yang, who has been reporting on the situation in China. Joining me now in the studio is William Young, who is the East Asia correspondent for Deutsche Welle, and he's been following the coronavirus outbreak very closely. Thank you so much for joining us in today's program. Thank you for having me, Andrew. Now, I have been glued to your Twitter feed for the past couple of weeks because you have been offering basically rolling updates on all the latest news related to the coronavirus. Uh, can you tell me why has it been important for you to keep everyone updated about this spread of this virus? So I think it started when the outbreak first came out from Wuhan, and then uh, we saw that there are a couple people that are kind of tweeting uh, fragmentedly about what's actually happening over there, but uh, it just doesn't seem like there is already someone who's keeping track of the larger picture, which is not only what's happening in Wuhan, but also all across China and also in different parts of the world. So when I actually accidentally came over this very useful Telegram uh, channel that I've been actually relying on most of the time, I realized that this is actually a channel that's organized by a couple Chinese people based in China. But what they do is they not only offer insights from within China, but also from around the world. So, And I just want to clarify. So when you say Telegram, you're talking about that's a social media app, sort of like WhatsApp or right. Line, right? Right, right, right. And this is a group of who are they? Are they journalists? Are they academics? Who is in this group? I think some of them are healthcare professionals and also other people in the group are activists mm -hmm. who have been following health-related issues in China for quite a while. So they uh, are providing this as a platform to really inform people of the latest developments and also the very key uh, information that are either coming from Chinese experts or experts from around the world. Okay. And so you're actually, you're getting this information in uh, Chinese and you're actually translating a lot of what you read and sharing it with the rest of the world. Now, can you tell me how accurate do you think this news is that you're seeing? Is it is it largely kind of verifiable? Yeah, so I think uh, at least all of the information that they cited about China are all coming from official news medias. And all of the information that are presented and displayed on Chinese official media are oftentimes the uh, information that are already approved by the Chinese government. So these are the information that would also later be shared with other governments and also other countries. And so a lot of the times uh, these information coming in in Chinese would later be picked up by major media outlets around the world. And whereas if it's from uh, other country, then most of the time uh, these managers of the channel are also relying on uh, reputable media outlets in uh, different countries so that I would say all of the information in that group is reputable and, 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 and also authentic, especially what they 
Sometimes students also they would explain like what are these misinformation that they see online, and then what are the actual information that is out there that people should stick to rather than going for the misinformation. That is so important because I know for a lot of us who are you know watching from home, we're so far away from Wuhan, we're so far away from China um, that it's really hard to tell what's you know what we can believe and what we can't believe. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the numbers. Um, so you've one of the things you've been doing is you've been giving kind of an updated list of how many cases there are, how many confirmed cases, how many people who have recovered, how many deaths. For the figures that are coming out of China, uh, there's also been reporting saying that um, these numbers may be much smaller than reality. What is your take on that based on what you've been reading and the people who you've been following who are actually on the ground in China? So what I've been reading and also what uh, on Chinese social media is for example, a lot of the times uh, there would be desperate family members of some patients who are just uh, very pissed or very uh, frustrated about how the local uh, hospitals are treating and handling the whole situation so that they would go on to either Weibo or even Twitter mm -hmm. to share about the difficulties uh, of their family members trying to access the uh, medical supplies and or, or also even just getting doctors to check up on them. And uh, there have been people sharing information about how once their family member died in the hospital, the moment that the family member died, the hospital basically call him or her and then ask them to basically contact the local cremation center and then ask the cremation center to pick up the, the body right away because they don't want the supposedly contagious dead body to stay in the hospital for too long. And so when that happens, basically these a death are most likely not recorded into the official figures that we're seeing. And now are these people who have maybe not been diagnosed? They've passed away from, you know, what some people are calling a serious uh, pneumonia, but they haven't actually had the chance to have the official diagnosis of it being the the new uh, coronavirus. Is that why they're not being counted in? Yeah, so I, actually the process of really confirming what, uh, a patient as officially infected by the virus is a very complicated process in China. First of all, these patients with symptoms that are already happening need to line up for hours in order to just try to get a CT scan. And then a CT scan showing that their lungs are indeed being infected is not even enough to justify or qualify them for being considered as a confirmed case. After that, they also need to do other uh, DNA tests to make sure that there are really traces of virus in their body. And so when that is confirmed, then they can be considered as a confirmed case of a coronavirus patient. But that process could take weeks. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of the people, a lot of the times, uh, they probably have to go back and visit the hospitals day and day. And then with the traffic ban that are currently imposing in Wuhan, many of them living far away from the hospitals have to walk on foot to mm -hmm. the hospital. And when your lawn is already infected, for, for example, one of the sources that I've actually talked to, his father is really pretty much like very weak. And uh, when your lawn is, you know, when, when you have to catch your breath and then barely be able to breathe just on your own, and you have to walk to a hospital, that's basically yeah. impossible for him to do that. So a lot of these people ended up, after the CT scan, they were given some medicines, basic medications that are 
uh, and then they were asked to go home and uh, you know impose a self quarantine for 14 days. So, I mean, we're looking at already more than 20,000 confirmed cases. What is your understanding about the actual number of confirmed cases? Is there a kind of a consensus among people who are observing it about how much higher that number could actually be? So there are experts saying that the number could already be at 100,000 now. But then again, that is only based on how fast the transmission can happen. As we have already seen by the confirmed numbers, it it has way surpassed the number during the SARS epidemic. Mm -hmm. So they were saying that, and also because uh, there were already 5 million Wuhan people uh, that are outside of the city when the lockdown was being imposed. A couple weeks ago. So imagine had that many people already been exposed to this virus potentially for weeks before they left for the Chinese New Year holiday. And we should just give you an idea about the size of Wuhan. Wuhan is about 11 million people if you count just the citizens of Wuhan. So to have nearly, you're saying nearly half of the population may have been on the road during the, the Lunar New Year holiday. Right, right, right. And that, okay. that's actually an admission made by the local government when they were being questioned about, mm. you know, the whole effectiveness of the lockdown. Now, you've been following this pretty closely since January. What is your understanding about the Chinese government's response to this? Is this too little too late? Yeah, so a lot of the reporting, including the local sources that I've actually talked to, are saying how in the beginning, the relevant information about the actual what kind of virus it is, and then like how can you trans, you know, like uh, contract it, and also how it, it is transmitted, are all very vague. And like the information that they're getting bef- right before the lockdown was basically it is containable and curable in the beginning. But then when the numbers are really surging, over the like a, a few days before the lockdown, and then by when, when the Chinese uh, experts in Beijing finally came out and say that it's clearly that they're already seeing signs of uh, limited people to people transmission, that's when they realized that then the government has been lying to hiding up some of the key facts for weeks before they came out and uh, admit that they you know cannot can no longer. I guess, like, conceal the very key information and and the extent of the infection by that time. So it was roughly around January uh, 23rd when the lockdown occurred. So basically, they they locked down the whole city of Wuhan. That's when we started to get kind of more information from the authorities in China. Right. So, but then the first few cases existed in, like, the end of last year. So there is about a three to four weeks period where Mm. people are still being, like, not very aware about wearing masks and wearing, mm. you know, like washing their hands. Mm. And they still go to the, even the seafood market that was the place where the virus originated from uh, was still operating for one week before they officially close it down. So imagine how many more people were already exposed to that virus before the government started taking the more serious measure to really try to contain it. Now, you've also been following kind of what people are saying online in China about the government's response. What are you seeing there? Like, how are people responding to the way it's been handled in China? So when it was only the local government handling this whole situation, the frustration was up the roof that basically everyone was complaining and then uh, criticizing and their frustration was so strong that you could feel like if 
if the central government did not intervene and really take it over, I don't know, some sort of revolution could have happened at any point at that time. But then when the central government took over, uh, they quickly imposed and then also implemented a couple uh, mechanisms to really comfort the local and ensure the local community that things are going to be okay once the central government take over. And then they wrote out a couple programs, kind of like, like, like the makeshift hospitals that we're seeing right now popping up, uh, not only in Wuhan, but in several provinces that are copying this model. So when that started to happen, at least people are feeling a little bit more assured about uh, maybe this epidemic is not going to get out of control. So sort of like the dissent online or people speaking out against the government response, that has kind of settled down a little bit in the past couple of weeks since they've rolled out more draconian measures. Right. And the other reason of why we're seeing less of the very sensitive and critical, I guess, takes on the government's handling of this is because actually over 300 citizens have been either put into a temporary detention or be fined for sharing relevant information about the virus online. And that has not only been in Wuhan, but also all across China. And a very uh, prominent Chinese ex- uh, activist, Hu Jia, he was actually uh, took away from his house and put into a temporary detention when he was originally invited to go on air on Radio Free Asia's show last weekend. So that also just shows how insecure the Chinese government is about having the full extent of the epidemic being revealed to the world. What are you worried about most right now in terms of this virus continuing to spread in China? I think what I am most worried about is the number of the recovered people, because I've actually been seeing a lot of these more I consider as propagandic information or short messages about oh, how many people were discharged from this hospital in what province, and then they kept highlighting that number, but at the same time there isn't that much information about how did these people recover from this virus, and then what are the treatment that they went through, because I think these information will be very important, not only to people in China, but also around the world, because then the whole world will have a better understanding about it. And also the fact that the uh, U.S. government claimed that, you know, their, uh, I guess their attempt to convince the Chinese government to let their experts to go inside China and help them have been either ignored or not addressed until yesterday, you know, for weeks, then that also just shows how either China is still insecure about the outside world getting the first-hand insight about the actual information and the uh, details about this virus. was East Asia correspondent for Deutsche Welle, William Young. Tune in next week as he tells us more about the situation in Taiwan and what people on social media are saying about the new coronavirus. Thanks for tuning in to Taiwan Today. I'm Natalie So. John Van Trieste and the destination Taipei, the 1910s.
Taiwan has been known for a number of products over the years. In the 17th century, it was deerskins. In the 19th century, it was camphor and tea. But there's one local product that's equaled big business through almost all of Taiwan's recorded history, sugar. And in an otherwise unremarkable Taipei neighborhood, you'll find a monument to the sugar business, the Sugar Factory Cultural Area. You'd be hard-pressed to find a better retelling of this sweet piece of Taiwan's history than what you'll find inside here. This was once a sugar factory, and while today only three simple warehouses remain, the exhibit inside the main warehouse gives us a picture of the factory in its prime and shows us what came even earlier. Today, we're heading inside to explore the story of an industry that's touched every period of Taiwan's past. The story is told in a big loop that moves around the otherwise empty floor of its warehouse home. The paintings, old photographs, and memorabilia in here pop out in the low lighting. It's hard to know where to begin because there's no exact date we can put on sugar's start here. All we can be really sure of is that outsiders quickly realized its value. Big Sugar got its start in Taiwan after 1624. That year, the Dutch East India Company set up shop in the south of Taiwan, and Dutch merchants worked hard to make the area's sugar a hot commodity. They enticed Chinese sugarcane farmers to immigrate to their Taiwan colony, and they introduced cattle to the island to help these farmers out. Production boomed, and Taiwanese sugar was soon sold abroad. 37 years later, the Dutch were expelled from Taiwan at the hands of the half Chinese warlord Koxinga. At the time, it might have seemed like sugar would be tossed out with the rest of the Dutch legacy. Koxinga needed rice to feed his men, and that meant a drop in sugar production. But sugarcane put the cash in cash crop. During its brief existence, Koxinga's kingdom was able to produce more sugar than even the Dutch had. It seems to be a pattern that repeats over and over. There are all kinds of twists and turns in Taiwan's history, but after each one of them, sugar always seems to come out on top. That's what happened after the next big change, when Koxinga's family ran out of luck. Imperial China took over his private kingdom in 1683, and despite ups and downs, Taiwan's sugar producers seem to do well. On one wall, there's a list of things that people back across the Taiwan Strait used to say about Taiwan. They've got money up to their ankles. Plant for one winter there, and you can eat for three. The way they're written here, they almost sound envious. When we check in again over a century later, things are still going well. For sugar workers, the 19th century was a time of prosperity, even as Imperial China suffered. During this period, Western powers used force to open imperial ports to trade, and as they did so, Taiwanese sugar found new buyers in Europe, the U.S., and Australia. A British consular report of the period notes that workers making sugar in Taiwan were pulling in wages double or triple what their fellow workers across the Taiwan Strait could hope to earn. Even farm workers on a sugar plantation could afford imported European clothes. This wealth doesn't seem to have changed much about how sugar was made. Black and white photographs show that cattle-drawn grindstones were still being used to crush sugar. Taiwan's next colonizer would change that. In 1895, after a war with Imperial China, 
Japan took possession of Taiwan. Sugar was an early priority, and work began to bring Taiwan sugar production into the industrial age. Among the new mechanized factories set up was the one we're standing in, founded in the 1910s by a new company, the Taipei Sugar Manufacturing Company. Its state-of-the-art machinery processed sugarcane from all over the Taipei area, sent in by rail, boat, and even ox cart. It was a bit of an outlier as far as sugar factories go. Most of the action in this business happened in the sunny tropical south. Here in rainy, cool Taipei, this was Taiwan's northernmost sugar factory. But it thrived even after another company bought it out. Not all was well in Sugarland, though. As production sped up, Taiwan's latest generation of sugar farmers were ready to revolt. They could only sell to a small group of government-approved companies, and everything was done on the company's terms, including setting the asking price. These companies would weigh the sugar cane, and their measurements were also final. As one group of farmers from central Taiwan found out, the numbers that came out of these scales weren't always the most accurate. Suspecting the worst, these farmers got three local officials to stand on one of these scales. The combined weight of three grown men. 49 kilograms. The plight of the sugarcane farmer was put into song, with lyrics written on one wall here lamenting slave-like conditions. In 1925, farmers' anger erupted, sending more than 30 of them to jail and opening up the way for more labor unrest through the end of the 1920s. None of that dampened enthusiasm for sugar, though. 1935 was supposed to be a big year. Japan had ruled Taiwan for 40 years by this point, and a huge expo was set up to showcase the good sides of colonization. Sugar was a big part of this. It even got its own pavilion. Unfortunately, the photo here only shows the pavilion when it was empty, but records show that this was a happening place. Over the several weeks of the expo. 500,000 people showed up here just to enjoy a free cup of ice-cold Taiwan sugar water. But in 1935, the expo was just one place giving a rosy view of sugar's potential. The sugar of the East comes from Taiwan. That's the caption on a triumphant illustration done that year, showing Taiwanese sugar flowing to the rest of East Asia. It was a strange thing, though no one at the time could have known it. Just a few years down the road, war would bring Taiwan sugar production to a new peak before sending it crashing through the floor. Fighting between Japan and China broke out in 1937, and as Japanese colonial subjects, workers in Taiwan sugar industry were told that they would now use their sugar to serve the nation. Production surged, but then other countries got involved in the fighting as the war spread to Southeast Asia and the Pacific. It seems that some of Taiwan's sugar bosses assumed that Southeast Asia would soon be theirs, and they made arrangements to move on. Some even closed up their Taiwan factories altogether. Then hardship started hitting home. Sugar cane fields were given over to rice and sweet potatoes, and some factories where sugar had been processed were repurposed as chemical plants meant to help the war effort. This sugar factory shuttered in 1943. Sugar production wouldn't return here again. Yet Taiwan's sugar industry carried on. 
Japan left Taiwan at the end of the war and handed it over to the Chinese nationalists. This new government set up its own Taiwan sugar company, and for a time during the 50s and 60s, the company turned sugar into one of Taiwan's chief exports. So what happened to the sugar industry? Why is Taiwanese sugar probably something you've never heard of? Given all the big changes it had pulled through, the answer is a bit anticlimactic. Changes in the market. Prices fell during the 1980s, and since 1991, something strange has happened. Taiwan has become a sugar importer. After the war, bits of the factory were knocked down or sold off, as whatever was left over was put to new uses. In 1997, though, when plans to build a nursing home at the site were discussed, local residents protested. They wanted there to be a park here, and they wanted the remains of the old factory to be a part of it. The old warehouses are a focal point for the neighborhood. Early on, the place even changed its official name to Sugar Factory Neighborhood, a name it still has today. In the park today, you'll find a statue of a cattle-drawn grindstone in use a replica of the train that once served the factory, and, of course, a plot of land set aside for raising sugarcane. It's this neighborhood's piece of a Taiwanese story that once saw this island sweeten the whole world. I'm John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another journey through time. This is Taiwan Explained. Brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. Taiwan has begun rationing surgical masks. That's because people have been hoarding them. But don't worry, the government has a plan. Let's have a look. You'll need to bring your national health insurance card to an NHI-affiliated pharmacy, and we'll have a link to those below. There's a limit, only one purchase of two masks in a seven-day period. The price is 10 Taiwan dollars, about 16 cents US for two. You can only buy them on certain days depending on your NHI card number. So you can check the show notes for more details. But the question is, do you even need to wear a mask? Well, that's the topic of today's Taiwan Explained. In today's Taiwan Explained, I'm going to tell you all about surgical masks and who should wear them. All right, Nally, we have one minute on the clock. You ready? Yes. Go. It seems like everyone in Taiwan has been obsessed with one thing, face masks. But do we really need them? Well, let's first talk about how viruses are spread. They're spread through coughing and sneezing, contact with infected people and infected animals, and contaminated surfaces, food, and water. But how effective are these surgical masks? Well, they were invented in the 1800s to protect patients from droplets coming from surgeons' mouths and noses. They do protect others from you and protect you from some large droplets from others. But they do not protect from small airborne particles. The US CDC does not consider it respiratory protection. One reason is there is leakage around the edges. So when should you wear a mask? Well, the Taiwan government says you don't need to wear one all the time. And they said you should wear one in a hospital if you have a fever, other symptoms, or if your immune system is weak. Ah, <laughs> a little over. It's okay. Okay, I'll Last finish one. up. Yep. And you could wear one um, if you're in an enclosed space or in contact with a lot of people. 
Okay, so wearing a mask does not necessarily guarantee protection. No, no, not at all. So only for maybe large droplets. If you sneeze, like right there, okay, this might protect me. Actually, and then it's going to protect me if you're wearing it. That's too, right. right. That's oh. right. Excellent. But you know what people need to do is actually mm. wash your hands mm -hmm. a lot and for about 20 seconds each time. That'll help us be protected from a lot of germs. I have definitely been washing my hands Me a lot. Me too. And don't touch your don't face. Don't touch your face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. And in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International. <laughs>